I'm having um, a lot of trouble realizing that this is actually happening, this three-month course. It just feels like another day so far. It hasn't quite sunk in the enormity <clears throat> of what we're all doing here together. I don't know if it's sunk in to you yet. You're a little closer to it. No, not yet. We're still talking and having a good time. Have a nice sit and it seems so pleasant and then you go off and play again. But here we are and it's a wonderful thing. I want to talk, I want to elaborate a bit tonight on the subject of the precepts, conscious conduct, morality, the term in Pali is sila, the term that we usually use. Just preface it by saying All five of us will be taking turns every night giving talks, and so you're going to hear five quite different ways of expressing the Dharma and our understanding of it and the way it comes out. And then you'll be hearing it in a hundred unique different ways of what that actually means and how it connects to your own experience. We're all quite unique. We're all a different piece of the mandala that is this expression of truth, of dharma. And so I just put that out to say, enjoy the differences, enjoy each piece of the puzzle, and if something doesn't fit for you, let it go. Don't, don't get into a lot of time analyzing something I said isn't quite the same as something Steve said, you know, and who was right and who was wrong, and you actually think it's a third way altogether, um, you make yourself crazy. And it doesn't really accomplish anything, since analysis never gets us anywhere in this practice. So I just want to put out enjoy the dance, the manifestation, and if something seems like it doesn't work for you or doesn't make sense, let it go, let it go, and just be here for the next day. The Dalai Lama has said at times that his true religion is kindness. And that really strikes a profound note with me, because it is seemingly on the surface so simple and uh, maybe almost naive. But for me, when I really explore the aspect of our meditation practice, the aspect of working with conscious conduct, I find that, for myself, to be a very profound way of expressing the truth of how we relate to life, to ourselves, to other beings. As Joseph mentioned, I think, last night, we cultivate our meditation practice, the formal sitting and walking, the mindfulness from moment to moment, from a foundation of loving-kindness. That we are cultivating through the mindful attention, clarity, clear seeing of things just as they are, but this clear seeing is imbued with loving-kindness, with open-hearted connection, with ourselves, with whatever experience is arising, and with a deep-seated acceptance of ourselves, of whatever experience is arising. That loving-kindness is an attitude that is really hand-in-hand 
with our Vipassana practice. Kindness to others, kindness to the environment. Working with conscious conduct is really an outer manifestation, obviously, of loving-kindness, of this attitude of kindness. It's uh, an expression on the verbal and active level of this commitment to true kindness. I just want to name the five precepts again because they are part of the very basic agreement that we begin our practice here together with that holds us together as a community. These being agreement not to take any life, not to harm other beings. The second one, the commitment not to take what is not freely offered. The third, for the period of the retreat, not to engage in sexual behavior in our daily life. It's to refrain from sexual behavior that brings harm to ourselves or others or challenges or breaks in on another couple's commitment. The fourth is commitment to wise speech, not to lie, not to deceive ourselves or another, not to use harsh speech or divisive speech, and even not frivolous or gossip speech. Of course, here we're in noble silence, so that helps a lot. And the fifth, not to take drugs and toxicants that cloud the mind, that cause heedlessness, that impair our judgment. We say over and over that these basic five precepts, this commitment to non-harming in the most basic form, is the foundation of our practice. But I feel for myself it goes much, much deeper than simply a foundation from which we can just get this right, follow this precept, and then get on to what's really important. Concentration, the mindfulness, let's really get somewhere with our practice. I feel for myself that the practice of mindful attention to conscious speech and action, non-harming speech and action, is in itself a most profound gateway to liberating understanding. That it is my speech, my action, is an actual expression of the stability and depth of my understanding of our essential oneness, of the love and compassion that is the natural expression of a free mind, and that by working with paying attention to how I am speaking and acting, how I am relating to the world, to others, to my environment, that by nature of the quality of that attention, by the intention to understand and to purify, that that the depth of understanding then again grows deeper from the attention to speech and action. So it's sort of like a circle, but not a vicious circle. It's the other way, a beautiful circle. So my religion is kindness is far from a naive or simplistic statement. In some ways, for me, I see that that holds all the breadth and depth 
of the Buddha Dharma of our meditation practice is looked at from different aspects. The Buddha said quite a lot, talked quite a lot about how morality or sila, conscious conduct, is the foundation of our practice. He says in the Parinibbana Sutta, he said over and over and over, it's a really not just one discourse, it covers a whole period of time before the Buddha's death. He says, concentration, when imbued with sila, brings great fruit and profit. Wisdom, when imbued with concentration, brings great fruit and profit. The mind that is imbued with wisdom becomes completely free, completely free from the torments of sense desire, becoming, false views, and ignorance. So it's one of those kind of building block statements that begins with morality as the foundation for the freedom of deep understanding. Even if we were simply to take these five precepts, not explore them very deeply, or their effect on our behavior very deeply, but simply obey them blindly as some kind of outer rule, okay, I have to do this to get on with my practice, or I have to do this in order to be here, whatever reason. But we, even with that attitude, were to simply observe and speech in action these five precepts. It would be extremely powerful. I mean, imagine if, if we just never killed another living being. Imagine if we just, no one ever killed another human being. Or we never took another thing that wasn't offered. It's extremely powerful. And it said that in themselves, simply by following the precepts, it will bring about change in our mind, in our understanding. It gives power and control to our body, to our expressions in the world, to our actions, to our speech. It's some increase in purity and clarity of mind will result simply from following the precepts, which is obvious, I would think. And also it gives rise to stronger loving kindness and compassion. You can see, even if I don't really deeply feel a sense of oneness with all beings, but I still refrain from slapping that mosquito. That has an effect. It just can leave a little space where I might get more of an inkling that we're actually beings here in the same planet, that to that being life also matters. Simply paying attention to wise use of speech can create, in my own experience, much greater harmony with others, and thus a sense of harmony and peace in myself. There's a lot of less processing to do if I watch my mouth. And that leaves a lot more space to pay attention 
to what else is going on and to begin to actually notice our essential interconnectedness. The Buddha says a lot that by protecting others, one protects oneself. Following the precepts, adhering to these simple rules, is outwardly a way of protecting others from harm, from our unskillful actions. And in that protection of others, we're then protecting ourselves from the direct result of our unskillful actions. For example, sarcastic, angry speech usually gets something similar coming back, just in a simple, obvious way. It protects us from the remorse of things that we've done either out of hatred or greed or simple confusion, not knowing what was really why. And that's something you'll probably notice from time to time over the course of these three months. It commonly comes up for us on retreat. Not guilt, not saying, I was a bad person, I should suffer, not tormenting yourself with self-judgment and self-hatred. I mean, that might happen too. But the, the remorse, the sense of sort of reliving unskillful things that we've done with awareness, really allowing ourselves to experience in a way the pain that accrued to others and to ourselves from some unskillful speech, unskillful action that we might have done in the past. And you might, you might find the strangest little memory is coming up. And I remember one sitting, I, uh, I started reliving a way I had been unkind to a friend of mine in the sixth grade. And just kind of, you know, blew her off to go be with some other little girls that I, for some reason, had some idea that it would be more socially good for me to be friends with them. I don't know what, in my little sixth grade mind. But I really went through the pain of how selfish and unskillful and insensitive that had been. So it doesn't always have to be the most horrific thing you've ever done but just the little ones, and we see that that remorse and that experiencing of that pain is one of the effects of unskillful action. Through our mindfulness, through our willingness to be open to and explore this, that's how we begin to deepen in the visceral understanding of the fact that we're actually not separate. That by doing something inconsiderate and unkind to my friend in the sixth grade, I was hurting myself. Not um, just in some idea of hurting myself, but an actual visceral experience of pain. So by protecting others, we're protecting ourselves. It's really quite beautiful, the, the interdependence there. But For me, I've been finding over the years that working with conscious conduct has become much more subtle, of course, much more profound than a simple adherence to a set of rules. It gets much more interesting, too, when you're really looking at the subtleties of it. As you you probably know, and which we'll talk about in much more detail in some of the talks later on, when the Buddha laid out his teachings of how to live a life of awareness 
and of freedom is in what was called the Eightfold Path. Eight aspects of life, of cultivation of heart and mind, the way to live. Conscious conduct is three of those eight spokes, but it is not the first three. The first step on the Eightfold Path is called wise understanding, understanding of how things are which leads into the second step, which is variously translated as wise thought, or wise intention, or wise aspiration. And that then leads to the next three, which have to do with speech, action, and livelihood. Wise speech, wise action, wise livelihood. So what I get from this is that it's our understanding, how we understand the world informs how we think, our intention, and that is what leads us to wise speech, wise action, and wise livelihood. So, if we didn't have some sense of understanding, we wouldn't be motivated to pay attention to our conduct and our speech at all. Whatever level, whatever degree our understanding is, doesn't matter. There's some little glimmer there that it's important. Even if the glimmer is if I yell at people, they yell back at me and I don't like it. You know, that's an understanding of cause and effect and of suffering, you know, and that's enough. Even if it's only, I really want to do this three-month course, I don't see what my behavior has anything to do with. I just want to sit on the the cushion and get really concentrated, but they say I have to do this, so I'll do it. Even that somehow gets us to pay attention. But on a much more, on the level to me that's much more interesting and more subtle is to look at our speech and our action not only from the effect, from the result of what happens when we say something, what happens when we do something, because that's not always in our control, but that the core of our speech, the core of action is in the intention, the volition that arises, that gives the energy for that thought, for that speech, for that action to occur. So that sila is actually a morality of intention. That it's the intention is the place to which we can bring our mindfulness, to which we can bring our awareness and our investigation. And that's much more workable and to me quite fascinating more so than just waiting to see what the result is. Okay, so what do I mean by intention? Skillful or unskillful? It's simply, and this we will talk really a lot about, but there's a volition in the mind that leads to, kind of an impulse, that leads to thought, speech, or action. And it can be associated with the whole variety of mental states, states of mind or heart. So the intention to speak could be associated with hatred, with fear, with loving kindness, with attachment, with generosity, with delusion, with indifference. You get the picture. The outer result, what one actually says, could be very similar and be coming from very different intentions. Same with how one acts. And so For example, you could act with a really clear intention of compassion, 
But the conditions in the situation are such that the result is not at all what you would expect to happen. Uh, an example, I was reading a biography of Sister Fang, Sister Chung Kong now, and she was talking about having been in jail in Vietnam during the Vietnamese War, and after some weeks in a very, very difficult situation, France had interceded and she was released. In the cell with her, which had been very crowded, there were two young girls, I think there were 12 or so, who had been arrested because they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time when a, a sweep was being made of Viet Cong. She was in a South Vietnamese jail. And so, as she was leaving and checking out with the head of the jail, she just said, you know, this isn't, they didn't do anything and this is really a bad environment for young girls. Wouldn't it be a great thing to let them go? The effect was that the police, the jail chief, got really annoyed and said, it's clear the prisoners are talking to each other, this is a bad thing, and he made the conditions much worse. You can't control the results of the conditions. The place that we have to look when working with our morality, when working with our conscious conduct, is in our intentions. What is imbuing the intention with which we speak and act? very rich and interesting, I find. And so you see, when we look in that way, I could be adhering to the letter of non-harming. Or I could be never taking what is not offered to me. But the intention behind it could be one of pride or of self-righteousness. You know, or uh, a sense of derision at other people who aren't living up to my high standards. Or it could be a real sense of caring. Or it could be a sense of total fear that if I do something wrong, I'll go to a hell realm. I mean, there's lots of possibilities for intentions. And of course, intentions arise anew in each moment, so we're never locked into one unchanging intention, which is a huge relief as we begin to explore why we say and do what we do. Okay, that one was a little ugly, but we're willing to look at it and see that it passes and be more present for the next future action. So Sheila, working with Sheila becomes much more profound than following a set of rules of behavior. I, I feel for myself that if I really practice it with integrity, with a real commitment, commitment to exploration, commitment to honesty, commitment to attention, that it becomes a practice of freedom in itself, an expression of understanding and of connection. I've also been discovering, if this is pretty obvious, maybe to you, but it takes me a while, that the more I am able to use mindfulness as the tool to pay attention to my behavior, rather than just blind adherence to the rules, 
But the more that I am able to pay attention, to notice my behavior, there begins to be more space to really notice the subtlety of cause and effect so that my relationship to conscious conduct, my relationship to the precepts has less and less to do with any set of rules anywhere. And more and more, it's uh, internalized. It becomes a completely... I don't like, really like to use inner and out, outer such, such a dichotomy, but I'm saying inner as opposed to a set of rules. That the relationship to conscious conduct becomes quite experiential. That, for example, as soon as I move out of harmony, as soon as I speak or act from an intention of anger, an intention of greed, uh, an intention of fear or self-righteousness, as soon as I speak or act from that place, I get feedback immediately, and not necessarily from the person, although that's part of it, but, but from the own, my own inner experience that the out of harmony, the, con- the connectedness between me and the action and the person gets much more easily experienced. For example, um, I tend to be quite sarcastic in my humor. And the less attention I'm paying to myself and the more tea I drink, the more sarcastic I tend to get. And I'm quite amusing myself. I mean, I'm having quite a good time. And, um, if I stop paying attention, at some point I often go over a little edge and I say something that isn't at all amusing to the person I'm saying it to. And it used to be there would be times when I would be completely oblivious to that. And if the person didn't tell me something, you know how usually people tell you a week later or three years later, I wouldn't even know it. But now it's, it's much more... As soon as it's out of my mouth, I know. Even before the person kind of flinches in just a little subtle way, you know, I know because I feel it. It's actually a visceral experience. I say, oh, that was really unkind or out of harmony or whatever particular terms you want to use. It's so clear. And it's not an intellectual thing. You know, I can't actually ignore noticing that. I mean, it's easy, though, to notice it, and then if one has a power of steam up, not really stop and say, I'm sorry. But I really can't not notice it anymore. And that's just a a simple example, but uh, the sense that I don't need to say, oh, yeah, right, you know, I'm not supposed to use harsh and abusive, abusive speech. I don't need to refer to the precept, because the experience in itself is one that's shattering the harmony that's acting as if we are not somehow living in oneness. And so it becomes really interesting because after a while you can't pretend anymore. It requires a real honesty with myself. But this this is really the beauty of mindfulness. It's honest, but it's not judgmental. It's not feeding into a sense of 
self-worthlessness, or I'm you know, a bad person, I'm disgusting, how could you say such a thing? I mean, that thought might arise, but we just watch it come and go. That's our mindfulness practice. But it lets us begin to see much more potently the reality of cause and effect and the immediacy of suffering that arises from speech that does not come from an intention of non-harming, that comes from an intention of self-aggrandizement or whatever. In a way, all the precepts really come down to mindfulness. This is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Mindfulness is a fundamental precept. Think of the precepts as manifestations of mindfulness. Because when you're mindful, you're responsible. And then the precepts are not needed to dictate our behavior. Because when we're mindful, it's so obvious. We don't have to think about it. It's so obvious. Just be kind to one another and ourselves. And there's not a lot more to say. So just as our wisdom through attention to our behavior, to our motivation, to our intentions, and also through our meditation practice, through our willingness to simply be open and present for whatever happens, through this our wisdom, our understanding of the nature of ourselves, of life, of freedom, it's bound to grow. We can't stop it no matter how we try, and we'll try every way we can think of. But as long as we're willing to be really present and open and clear, a sense of understanding and wisdom will continue to develop, broaden, deepen, however you want to say it, and it just keeps on and on and on. And for me, I've been finding in working with the precepts, it's the same way. As I pay attention, notice more subtleties of cause and effect and intention as wisdom develops so too my relationship to the depth and profundity of the meaning of each precept also widens and develops and grows and I start to wonder I mean I do wonder often in myself where do I draw the boundaries to see more and more how widely my speech, my action, affect others. You know, can I draw the boundary? Do I draw it at myself, at myself and the person I'm directly in relationship with at that moment? Do I draw the boundaries of where my speech and action affect with the family, with the community, here, with the state, with the world? Do I just draw it with people? Do I draw it with the environment? Where does myself stop and another begin? Where do we reach the boundary of the depth and profundity of following these precepts, of how our actions and speech ripple outward and touch and affect all other beings, all other aspects of this universe? Metta and compassion, loving kindness and compassion, are boundless states Boundless meaning no limits can be, you can't come to the end of it, some place that is not, that is somehow excluded from the state of love and compassion. 
expressions or manifestations in a way of the boundlessness of freedom. And if the precepts, if our conscious conduct is an expression of our understanding, then that also must in some way approach a boundlessness of where and how we are all interconnected and how our actions and speech affect one another. So just, uh, I'm not going to go through all five precepts, maybe just the first couple, but just sharing some of the way my mind works when I start reflecting or paying attention to the actual precept itself and how it continues to grow for me or to develop in me and get broader and broader and broader. And there's no answers. I really see how you can't have this be a rule of how to behave because it's far too complex. So, so what do I mean by that? Thich Nhat Hanh says, he speaks a lot about working with conscious conduct. Um, is this essential that we do not expect to begin by being perfect because that's very difficult, but that at least we incline our minds in that direction. So looking at the first precept of not harming other beings, not killing other beings, it's incredible. That one commitment not to harm other beings How much of our behavior does that involve? And where, in a particular moment, do I draw the boundary or do I choose consciously or unconsciously not to see the interrelatedness? Where do we each make our choices? Because who can do this one perfectly? How can we live in this world the way it is without ever harming another living being. You know, it seems almost impossible. Just taking antibiotics is harming those little parasites, except for some of us, and it doesn't work at all. But uh, boiling water, driving in a car. I'm really aware every time I'm driving in a car of all the bugs smashing against the windshield. You know, and some people like in the James, you know, go, will make choices that we don't make of, of wearing masks, not to breathe in insects and so forth. I mean, there's all levels to how far we take this. You can see there's no, there's no way to make a rule and say this is what's right and these mean non-harming and this part's okay. But for each of us, in our own willingness to Pay attention to our conduct. And again, here is where it comes back to intention rather than focusing so much on outer results. Um, Robert Aitken, Roshi, Zen Roshi in Hawaii, says that the practice of peace and harmony, the practice of peace and harmony, is peace and harmony, not some technique designed to bring it about. And so I kind of, I think of that a lot, of really bringing my intentions, how I relate to the world, to be those of compassion and love, to try to be peace and harmony, rather than try to draw up a list of things. Well, if I never eat meat, that's how I'm not going to harm other beings. You know, If I only drive a car when I have to, that's how I'm never going to harm other beings. 
It's not easy answers. Here we've gone through at IMS, we've gone through lots of, for an example, lots of bouts with trying to find our communal relationship. And if you think it's hard finding your own relationship to difficult situations, try and do it with 25 people. And then every year the group changes and you go through it again. For, with the cockroaches, you might have a chance to make friends with some of them this fall. I don't know quite how vital our cockroach population is this fall. It varies from year to year. But we've gone through a lot over the years in relationship to our deeply held, not just beliefs, but our deeply held commitment to non-harming behavior, to a sense of our interconnectedness, to whatever sense each person brings of connectedness or disgust at cockroaches, to our need to abide by the health laws, you know, out of fear that we're going to get shut down, out of our need not to have the yogis be really disgusted to see too many cockroaches in the wrong places, to, you know, there's a, a whole list of where, where do we make the decisions and out of what. And I, I remember a period just a few years ago where we had some sessions of all getting together and doing metta meditation to the cockroaches and asking them to leave because if they didn't, we were going to have to do something more strong. And then, didn't we all make a commitment to go home and do metta every day, each one of us, for a certain period of time for the cockroaches? And then we got in touch with some, some bug psychics in Vermont. <laughs> <laughs> We really tried, you know, <laughs> and it didn't work. Any of this stuff didn't work at all. They were very happy and multiplying. <laughs> and and it's, it's difficult. And when you have to do something that is actively harming another being, there's a certain level that you can't get around that fact in that moment of doing it but that at least it's done quite consciously and really paying attention to the effects and to the whole rippling effect of what's going on. So that's just one example, but there's no, no easy answers in this. When I first went to Thailand, before I ordained as a nun, I was staying in the temple north of Bangkok, um, where I was going to ordain. It was my first, my first night there. And I had, my hair was very long, I hadn't cut it yet. And sleeping on the floor of the little hut, the little kuti, uh, I woke up in the middle of the night and somehow the, the place was just infested with ants. They were all, my hair was just filled with ants, they were all over me. And I was new in Thailand, I wasn't quite equanimous yet. And so in the morning I went to the abbot, who's a very well-known abbot in Thailand. And his secretary, another monk, said, oh, no problem, and came running out with a big can of Raid. And I was shocked, and I was really shocked, you know, oh my God, this, you know, it was just pragmatic. I ran into the same thing in Plum Village with Sister Fawn, where they had some kind of little spiders that, you know, really freaked out the, the guests who were staying there, and the next thing I knew, she was in there with a bug spray, and again, I was, oh, I can't believe it, you know, but just that there's no easy answers. But our refuge, or my refuge, is in the 
sincerity of intention, of commitment to integrity, and that I'm willing to see as far as possible the ramifications and to be as conscious as I'm able to in this moment, in some moments that's more conscious than others, and to then take responsibility for the action that I then take part in. So how do we practice peace and harmony? And again, it comes back to intention. It's possible to, for example, be a vegetarian out of a deep respect for not harming animals, and it's possible to be a vegetarian filled with disdain and loathing for the people who eat meat. You know, not the same thing. That's not practicing peace and harmony exactly. It's possible to really live a non-harming life outwardly and be filled with hatred for the people who are harming. You know, that's also not really quite a non-harming life. This is from Robert Aitken again. The industrialist says it's a dog-eat-dog world. The bodhisattva does not deny that fact, but only the spirit of such a statement. He or she, the bodhisattva, follows the way of compassion, nurturing all beings and being nurtured by them. So where do we draw the boundaries? I wonder a lot at the violence in our culture here, and of course I don't know, but I wonder how much of it is to do with the violence on TV, the violence in the movies, and so then it's a really deep question for me, if I pay to go to a violent movie, am I contributing to the violence in the culture? I don't know. Thich Nhat Hanh actually talks about this aspect under the fifth precept of not taking in intoxicants or drugs or substances that cause heedlessness or cloud the mind. And under this he puts in paying attention to you know, the shows we watch, TV, and stuff that we take in. Which actually you can see, if, you, if, if I, I haven't done this in a long time, but remember I used to come home from work and turn on the TV, it's total trash, and sit there like a zombie for three hours, like I was in glue or something, completely unable to get up. And I might as well have drunk myself into a stupor, it was just the same effect. So anyway, where do we draw the line? And each of us will find that for ourselves, and for me it's constantly shifting and changing. It's the beauty of mindfulness, that it's just about being awake in this moment. And this moment is constantly changing. So it's not that we can take some static line and say this is it, but it takes awakeness, awareness, and real integrity and honesty in each minute. And the more we do that, the more we become attuned to our essential oneness and the more natural an expression of non-harming becomes. Same with the second precept, and I think I'll just talk a little about this and then stop. Not taking what is not given, which it's obvious not stealing, we don't take other people's property. But it's not always that blatant. For example, here, what about that really nice shampoo somebody left in the bathroom? 
Even if you don't know for sure, you think it's been there for a few days, and probably nobody would care. But you don't really know that, you know. Again, look not at the action, but look at the intention that's giving rise to the action. If you turn it around to a more positive way, rather than not taking what's not given, it's really, this precept to me, is a way of expressing a deep sense of inner contentment. That when I'm deeply in tune with a sense of unity, a sense of innate completeness, uh, I don't need things. I don't need to take anything from anybody. There's not that sense of needy want. Dogen said, Zen, the Zen master, Japan, the self and the world are just as they are. The gate of emancipation is open. That mind of wanting, the mind of greed, of needing, you know, whatever it is, that zafu, nobody's sat on that cushion for four days now, and I'm sure it's a much better seat than the one I have. That mind is what shuts the gate of emancipation. And so this not taking, what's not given, is really a way of opening us to the inner contentment that opens our mind and heart to freedom. Very powerful. Can enough be enough? Deep appreciation of life, of experience, of this moment, of awareness, just as it is. Not much else is needed. Aitken Roshi says that not only in stealing are we stealing from others, we're stealing the potential of inner peace from ourselves in that moment. We're stealing part of our economic system. I read, just read this the other day in the New York Times, uh, interviewing different people with different opinions during the time of that population conference, human population conference in Cairo. So this was one man's opinion who is the president of World Watch Institute. He's talking about food needs, saying that we've entered a new era in which satisfying the need for seafood, for example, of the 90 million people being added each year, requires reducing the consumption for those already on Earth. Satisfying the demand for grain also means reducing the consumption of those already here. So that really hit me, the sense of every time I eat grain, there's more for me and less for somebody else. But there's a direct correlation. And if I eat seafood, that means somebody else doesn't get. It was really, it really hit me in some way. I mean, that's maybe how it always is, but in terms of population, we're sort of reaching the outer limits, where before it always seemed like there was so much it didn't matter. Now, it matters. And so when I pay attention, of course we need to eat. But I certainly begin, hopefully, to pay more attention to how much I eat and how much I throw away. And I'll pay as much attention to that as I could. But I am beginning to be aware how vital that is. Where do we draw the line at not taking what is not given? Who can make that distinction for us? From the Tao Te Ching. Be content with what you have. Rejoice in the way things are. When you realize there is nothing lacking, 
The whole world belongs to you. In many ways, that's our practice here together. When we can appreciate just what is, we realize that nothing's lacking. The whole world belongs to us. And that's how it is, actually, in every moment, when we can stop just for an instant, just long enough to be fully awake and present right here and now, in that we touch our essential completeness, our deep interrelatedness, the fact that we cannot speak or act without affecting others and vice versa. And it's our mindful awareness that allows for this growth and depth of subtlety of understanding that allows for change. It's not that we have to suddenly start saying, oh no, everything I do affects everyone else in the world and I have to start I have to stop eating. Maybe if I starve to death, somebody else, you know, can eat on the Horn of Africa, whatever, you know, or start to feel guilty or start to berate yourself every time you turn on the TV or whatever. No, it's not about that. It's not about guilt. It's not about self-righteousness. It's not about fear. But it's just to let this tool of mindfulness shine its light on our connections, on our intentions, on our speech and action, with a willingness to simply look honestly. And I think that's enough, that our conscious conduct uh, will naturally become an expression of our deepening understanding, an expression of love, an expression of realization, an expression of our oneness with all beings and again lead us into a deeper and deeper relationship with that. So let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.